We are on day seven of Russia's war on Ukraine, and it seems that it could be about to get bloodier. Occupying troops are continuing their advance on Ukrainian cities. This morning, Russia reported they had successfully occupied the southern city of Kherson. That was denied by the town's mayor, but social media videos showed Russian troops and armored vehicles in the streets. They're telling people to stay inside, uh, shooting in the air. You hear the sounds. I think I should stop recording before someone shoots me on my hand. Ukrainian authorities say 200 civilians were killed in the attack on that city, and they report the total civilian death from the war so far stands at over 2,000. Meanwhile, an apparently 40-mile-long Russian military convoy continues to approach Kyiv. But in this terrifying situation, many of the capital's residents remain resolute. What you see here is the people's attempt to self-organize and not to let this scum into our land because we have nowhere to go back to or run away. And we're not going to do that. We are tired of being afraid. So we're waiting for them, but not with flowers, but with Molotov cocktails, with bare hands or not just with bare hands. But they won't leave this place alive. Following a night of devastating attacks on Kyiv, Kharkiv and other Ukrainian cities, President Vladimir Zelensky made this statement. This is beyond humanity. Such a missile strike shows that for many people in Russia, Kharkiv is completely foreign. They know nothing about our capital, about our history, but they have an order to erase our history, to erase our country, to erase us all. And the Russians have shown themselves willing to fire heavy artillery into Ukraine's city centres. That includes Ukraine's second city, Kharkiv. A Russian strike hit this regional police building. Across the street, it also took down a building of the National University. In response to those images, journalist Leonid Ragazin said, one of the buildings of Kharkiv University on fire, hit by Russian missile. One of the first universities in Russian Empire, officially founded in 1805. I interviewed a pro-Russian academic here in 2014. Putin is now destroying Russian world he is claiming to protect. So pointing out there how Vladimir Putin seems to be alienating absolutely the vast, vast majority of people in Ukraine, even though he, he claims he is there to save Russian speakers. The northeastern town of Konotop has also been surrounded by Russian troops who have apparently given the residents an ultimatum, surrender or we'll tear your city apart. Speaking in this clip is Konotop's mayor urging residents to fight. And that appetite to resist was also evident in Melitopol, in the southeast of Ukraine. Their civilians used their bodies to create a roadblock against a convoy of Russian armoured vehicles. Come on! Come on! 
They're shouting murderers and occupants, and it goes without saying they are incredibly, incredibly brave. This is the current state of play according to the BBC. A similar situation to what we've been seeing over the past few days. Russian troops still moving in on Kyiv, but not having taken it. A similar situation in Kharkiv. But now you can see, um, as we said at the start of the show, Kherson now, it seems, is under Russian control. And as um, the humanitarian consequences of this Russian assault continue to unfold, more than 800,000 Ukrainians have fled the country. My daughter is crying. We just arrived and it was scary. We crossed the whole of Ukraine and saw our houses being blown up. That's the latest as we know it. It's a grim situation. And I have to say, when it comes to the humanitarian consequences of the war, I don't think the mainstream media are doing a bad job reporting it. I am also now, though, increasingly focusing on the things we we don't know or the things we're not being told. For example, while the BBC have done a good job of explaining what's happening in Kyiv or on Ukraine's borders to the West, I've been surprised that given we're in a war, I've seen barely any fighting and almost nothing at all of the Ukrainian military. I asked about this online last night and people pointed to Ukrainian requests not to film their troops in case it gave situational intelligence to the Russians. That, on one level, seems reasonable. But I'm still surprised at how little we're hearing about battles retrospectively or being told any information at all about the Ukrainian military, even in the vaguest of terms. This, again, all might be for practical reasons. But we also know that as well as being physical, wars are informational. There is a degree of curation going on in how the story of any war is told. This is no exception. To discuss this, I spoke earlier to Dr. Matthew Ford, an academic at Sussex Sussex University, an author of Radical War, Data, Attention and Control in the 21st Century. I started by asking him why he thought we'd seen so little of the Ukrainian battlefield. I mean, I imagine it's a, there's a sort of practical challenge, right? People, journalists arrive in Kyiv and then, you know, they have to orientate themselves. They don't know where the war's going to go. They're going to initially be located in main urban centres. And, you know, there's an editorial decision that, well, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know how this is going to unfold. And so that's that's the initial framing of how the war is represented. I mean, Nick Robinson was broadcasting the Today programme from a hotel in Kiev. A couple of days later, he was on a refugee column out to Poland. I mean, once you've gone from the practical side of things, then the question is, is when are they allowed to go out amongst Ukrainian units to find out where the war is? And I think there's, there, there is, it seems to me, an info war going on, partly shaped by, I mean, I'm guessing, but it wouldn't surprise me if the Western agencies aren't supporting Ukraine in this respect to try and shape how information is being brought back into the into NATO into the NATO countries into into the uh, into, out into the world and that's sort of representing war in, the war in Ukraine in a particular kind of way and mainstream media has a role to play in that as well I imagine uh, even though MSM is not embedded I mean I think just to pick it up I mean the first the first thing I recall is is that uh, MSM was asked not to join Ukrainian forces or to reveal where Ukrainian forces were located. And that clearly has got something to do with controlling where MSM is, is is something to do with trying to uh, maintain some control over the information space around uh, Ukraine. Do you think this is potentially giving us a misleading narrative of what's going on? Because I, I think the dominant narrative at the moment is 
the position is still that the Russians have overwhelming force, but we're told they're doing much worse than we expected them to do. They're bogged down. They're moving across Ukraine quite slowly. At the same time, we're told the Ukrainian army is performing much better than we expected it to. It's it's still maintaining some impact from the air, and some of these convoys are getting destroyed. That's sort of the impression we get. This is going surprisingly well for the Ukrainians. Do you think that reflects a reality, or do you think that reflects who's been better at the information war in this situation? My own hypothesis, and it is only a hypothesis, but it wouldn't surprise me if the script for the information war looked a bit like the winter war between the Finnish and the Soviets in 39. That That is represented, misrepresented, as a, a war that the Finns, uh, with all due respect to any Finns that are listening, but it's, it's typically misrepresented as a loss for the Soviets when actually, you know, there's a little, the, the history there is a little bit more complicated. But, you know, it fits with this idea that the Russians are disorganised, they have low morale, they're poorly led, they don't know how to read maps, they stick to roads, they're making stupid mistakes. There are all sorts of other things that imply that the Russian armed forces aren't actually very capable, and it sort of fits within an overarching narrative. And so my guess is, and it's only a guess, is that there's, there's been some information operations have been thought through in advance of this happening, and they have then figured out how to script some of events and then narrate them into that script. You're seeing images of columns approaching Kiev and uh, in various other places. If the Ukrainian armed forces were all stood up and had artillery, air, air power, and all the rest of it, then those columns would be in bits right now, rather than spread out over 15 or 30 kilometers of a tarmac uh, in Ukraine. Now, that, if you take some back bearings, you go, well, hold on a minute. If there is this column spread out, then where's the Ukrainian army? It's n- it, they're clearly not threatened, because if they were, then they would be in a completely different order. And that implies to me that there's a story in there. There's, there are a series of oddities that don't just don't stack up, despite the fact that there are some very, very good analysts who are doing a lot of work to push the narrative that it's all falling apart for the Russians. It's only a matter of time. We're delaying, slowing down things. And Putin's first initial plan, his maximalist plan of taking the whole of Ukraine, is actually being derailed. And he's having to fall back to, as Professor Lawrence Friedman said in a, a great article earlier, he's having to fall back onto plans C and D. That may be the case, but I, you know, I just at the moment there's a bit of evidence that I kind of, at least personally, I would like to see to make me believe that Putin isn't got what he's, you know, he's actually not managed to fulfil on his opening plan. You know, it could be that actually he does just want to split Ukraine in half, and he's not interested in taking the entire country. I was Matthew Ford speaking to me about the media coverage of of the military conflict in this war. I think it's worth staying on this for, for a moment because there has been a sort of challenge in a way for Navarro media during this war because normally when you know an international event happens, we're more often than not diametrically opposed to the mainstream media when it comes to what their, their official main take is. In this case, it just so happens that we do agree with the BBC and even our own government that Russia here started a war of aggression. That doesn't mean, though, that there is going to be no disagreements. It doesn't mean that there isn't room for criticism and critical thinking when it comes to how this is all being presented. Because obviously, there are the things we've been talking about the past two weeks and in previous years, which is sort of how Western militarism has had a role in informing who Vladimir Putin is, even if this is 
you know, essentially an imperial war of aggression. It, it doesn't seem to me that this is just someone who is trying to renegotiate NATO. This seems to me something which is far more ideological and something which is actually far more, far more sinister. We've talked about that that many times before. But I also do think that even while this isn't a situation like the Iraq war, where you had the media and government lying to us to start an aggressive war, you know, it, it, it's not that clear cut. There are also elements of this that we need to be careful of. And I think what we need to be careful of is that, as my guest said, wars do have narratives. And, and this isn't necessarily conspiratorial. It's, it's not necessarily that we're being lied to. But there are bits of this war that we're being shown and bits of this war that we're, we're not being shown. And I think partly, again, that's, that's not necessarily for sinister or secretive reasons. My guess here in this situation is that the Ukrainian military, what they want to do is make it appear, rightly or wrongly, that they have a decent chance of facing off the Russians and that this isn't a lost cause. And that's the, that's the message we're getting, right? The message we're getting is that the, the Russian military is pretty useless. The plucky Ukrainians are managing to defeat their, their convoys. And actually, this war is really in play. And in the time which has sort of passed in between the beginning of this war and, and now, when that narrative has been dominant, what has happened is that more and more countries in the West have committed to sending weapons and arms to Ukraine. The sanctions on Russia have got much tougher. And again, this is it's completely legitimate for the Ukrainians to want these things to happen, or at least the Ukrainian leadership to want these things to happen. But I feel like that could be swaying how we're looking at this war. And as my guest said, it does seem strange that every evening we're told about this 40-mile convoy, which is approaching ever nearer Kiev. But at the same time, we're told, you know, this war isn't a lost cause because there's still some air power that can take out those convoys. Well, if there was much air power that could take out those convoys, would the Russians be waiting there in a 40-mile convoy? It's all very confusing. And this, this isn't to say that there is a conspiracy going on. What it is, is to say that we do need to be aware that there is also a narrative war going on. And what we're told on the news, and this is why it's so confusing to watch, isn't necessarily a perspective of what's happening. I think also the Western media, rightly or wrongly, is kind of participating in this war. I think if Putin had said, oh, I don't want you to film my, my troops in case the Ukrainians can geolocate them, the BBC would have said, F you. But if the Ukrainians say that to BBC, they're understandably willing to, to go along with that. So I think at one point, it could be the case that in the coming days and weeks, we get a very different narrative of what has been going on over the past five days to what we have been told and, and, and the parts of the story that we have been told so far. Definitely something we're going to come back to. Obviously, the priority, though, is, is our absolute solidarity with the people of Ukraine as they are facing this aggressive war, an absolutely terrifying time, I'm sure. But when we are thinking about what are the difficult decisions that have to be taken right now to reduce harm in this situation, we need to be careful that we are aware and awake to the fact that what we're seeing isn't necessarily the whole truth. And this is going to be very, very relevant, actually, for our next section, which is about I suppose, the pros and cons of arming a resistance. Former U.S. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton has appeared on MSNBC to promote a plan for Ukraine, turning it into Afghanistan. This is what she said. But remember, uh, the Russians invaded Afghanistan uh, back uh, in 1980, and uh, although no country uh, went in, uh, they certainly had a lot of countries uh, supplying uh, arms and advice and even some advisors 
uh, to those who were recruited to fight Russia. It didn't end well for the Russians. Uh, there were other uh, unintended consequences, as we know. But the fact is that a very motivated and then uh, funded and armed uh, insurgency uh, basically drove the Russians out of Afghanistan. Um, obviously, the similarities are, are not uh, ones that you should uh, bank on because uh, the terrain, the development uh, in urban areas, et cetera, is so different. But I think that is the model that people are now uh, looking toward. We have to watch this carefully. We have to provide sufficient uh, military armaments for the Ukraine uh, military and volunteers. So Clinton there is not only citing Afghanistan as a possible model for Ukraine, but seems to be endorsing it. Conflict she's referring to there is the Soviet-Afghan war that lasted from 1979 to 1989. The war followed the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, which aimed to shore up a puppet government. And the Soviets then met with an intense and sustained resistance, which was heavily backed by the USSR's geopolitical foes, the United States. We should ask, though, who specifically were the US funding here? Well, the fighters leading the anti-Soviet struggle were a group of warlords and Islamists known as the Mujahideen. President Reagan can be seen here speaking in 1987 at a meeting with one of their commanders. The proposal, unacceptable to the resistance, is destined to fail. And as the resistance continues the fight, we and other responsible governments will stand by it. The support that the United States has been providing the resistance will be strengthened rather than diminished so that it can continue to fight effectively for freedom. A just struggle against foreign tyranny can count upon worldwide support, both political and material. The goal of the United States remains a genuinely independent Afghanistan, free from external interference, an Afghanistan whose people choose the type of government they wish, an Afghanistan to which the four million refugees from Soviet aggression may return in safety, and yes, in honor. On behalf of the American people, I salute Chairman Khalis, his delegation, and the people of Afghanistan themselves. You are a nation of heroes. God bless you. Mujahideen fighters were trained and armed by the United States, and they were successful in defeating the Soviet occupation. But contrary to Reagan's promise there, that didn't mean the Afghan public got to choose who ruled them. Instead of Afghanistan becoming a flourishing democracy, the Soviet withdrawal was followed by a bloody civil war between Mujahideen factions. And it would only end when in 1996, the Taliban took control. You probably know what followed from that point onwards. The Taliban would harbour Osama bin Laden, a former Mujahideen fighter who then organised 9-11 in response Afghanistan was invaded by NATO, which, remember, we're told is a purely defensive alliance, and Afghanistan would spend 20 years occupied by the West. The US would then withdraw, the Taliban would retake power, and now the Afghan people face starvation due to sanctions from the United States. A recent ITV report showed the consequence of those sanctions. To the people here, all these children, it doesn't matter that the Americans have gone and that the Taliban have come back. What does matter is that they just don't have enough to eat and that it feels like they are being forced slowly but inevitably towards starvation. They work miracles at the children's hospital. 
they need to for babies like Hazibullah, whose survival seems against all odds. Amina fights for breath, her malnourished body unable to fight off infection. Her mother tells us she will stay at her bedside until God decides her daughter's fate. For week after week, staff worked without pay. They still lacked medicine and equipment, and sometimes even miracles won't do. We have, in the previous months, mortality was about 200. 200 children. 200 children was died in here. But underlying it always is yes, hunger. It's just hunger. hunger. What the US is doing to Afghanistan is, is so, so disgusting. And this is happening right now. It's... It's, it's, it's just appalling beyond words. Going back to Ukraine, though, you, you might ask, why am I saying all of this now? What does Afghanistan have to do with Ukraine? Can we assume that arming the Ukrainian resistance will lead to the same consequences as did arming the Mujahideen? Well, of course, so much of this is, is uncertain. Different policies will mean different things in different places. I wouldn't suggest otherwise. But one question we should keep in mind. Why does Hillary Clinton still consider the Afghanistan example something worth repeating? Is it because it proved to be in the best interests of Afghan people? That would be difficult to argue. Half a million to two million civilians died in the Soviet-Afghan war, not to mention what happened after. So might there be another reason she considers it a success? Well, one thing that arming the Afghan rebellion did certainly achieve was damaging America's geopolitical foe, the Soviet Union. Any narrative which considers America's involvement in the Soviet-Afghan war a success is one concerned not with the lives of Afghans, but with the geopolitical interests of the United States of America. And I have to say, when it comes to Ukraine, I'm in no way reassured the same thing won't happen again. I'm joined now by Dalia Gabriel. I genuinely feel torn about whether or not the West should be arming the Ukrainian resistance, because I think they have every right to resist. This is a war of aggression from the Russians. At the same time, if the Russians have overwhelming force and we're arming the Ukrainian resistance, especially at, at the point at which, if it does, if the government of, of Zelensky does fall, then you are putting lots of arms into a, a war zone. And while possibly that could lead to a more just outcome than would have been achieved otherwise. It could also lead to a much longer and bloodier civil war. And as we've seen from, from this example, when this has been done in the past, it often hasn't been done for the interests of the people who are being armed or the population who are supposedly trying to be liberated. In the Afghanistan example, yes, the Afghans were liberated. Then the people who'd been armed, who were you know fairly extreme in this case, Ukraine does not need to be denazified. That is a Putin talking point. At the same time, there are militias which are far right. I think most countries where you ended up having sort of independent militias, a lot of them would end up having fairly dodgy politics. And so you can see how arming resistance movements often empowers extremists. In the case of Afghanistan, that led to terrorism and then an invasion by the US. I mean, it does feel like we've got no idea in what direction this could go. And I do worry that the people making these decisions don't necessarily have the futures the security of the Ukrainians at heart. I don't know, how, how do you navigate this, Dahlia? Well, I think that the creation of this kind of catch-22 situation, which we repeatedly seem to find ourselves in, you know, we found ourselves in it in Afghanistan, and we seem to be finding ourselves in it now, 
this is reflective of the deep systemic issues with how our world is organized. When you when you organize the world into a series of essentially imperialist blocks who are competing for economic hegemony, political hegemony, and then you flood that world with weapons, with for-profit arms trade, and a sort of clash of civilizations narrative, and you gut international diplomatic institutions of their legitimacy and power, then countries that happen to either be geopolitically in a strategic location like Ukraine, or that happen to, you know, like Afghanistan, be sitting on lucrative reserves, these countries then become pawns in those broader imperial um, struggles. And these countries where, you know, the ordinary population end up having to live under the endless anxiety and risk of war, of intervention, of invasion and attacks on their democratic system. Because, you know, this crisis in Ukraine didn't just start with this, with this most recent aggression. The Ukrainians have been living in this kind of limbo state of anxiety for many, many years now. And it's the regular people that routinely suffer from a world that is organized in that way, as we've seen over the past few weeks in the kind of increased scrutiny of the flowing of Russian elite money throughout London. We know that it's not the financial elite of those competing factions that really suffer. The financial elites of Russia, Britain and the US have been collaborating pretty frictionlessly in order to enhance their own investment portfolios. And then when it comes to these moments of rupture, of violence, it's not, again, those elites that suffer the most. And, you know, despite that clash of civilizations narrative that is really underpinning so much of this, and that we hear, as you mentioned, the, the narratives through which war is described, if you're looking at it through a lens of those elites, their interests are actually more often than not more aligned than you think. But it's within that lens of the world being organized in imperial blocks that the capturing of Afghanistan can be seen as a success story. Because it's not about, are the Afghanis living a decent and dignified life? That was never actually the question. It's, has this strategically important site been kept on our side rather than theirs? Is our empire winning or is theirs. And that doesn't just happen militaristically, it happens financially, it happens politically. You know, we have been seeing, you know, we know the impact of the British and the US empires, but we've also been seeing this ramping up of the embedding of, you know, Russian financial empire and Chinese financial empire, particularly um, in the continent of Africa. And so within that framework, the actual needs and democratic wishes of occupied nations, whether they're formally occupied or informally occupied, or in the crosshairs for whatever reason of both of these imperial blocks, you end up, they always end up in this impossible situation of being backed into that corner because their democratic wishes are not legible within that system. They Those wishes can only either be exploited cynically or actively repressed. And then you end up in this catch-22 situation when it all culminates and we look at it and we think, well, what is the choice here? And it's the elimination of that choice that creates crisis. 
We all remember those images of the Taliban taking over and Afghans holding on to the wings of US fighter jets when it seemed like the only options were Taliban rule or further US invasion. That kind of colonial exit strategy of destabilize and abandon of treating countries like pawns on a chessboard, that is a long term, that is a long old, you know, colonial strategy. We saw it in the partition in India. We saw it in Afghanistan. And I'm worried that we are going to see it here as well. I, I concur with a lot of that. And, and this is what is really worrying me, essentially, which is I don't necessarily think the US and NATO are planning. I don't think their ideal situation is that there is a really long civil war in Ukraine, which drains the resources of Russia and ultimately brings down Putin and the political system in Russia is, is replaced by something else, a system where in which they have more control. Like, I, I don't necessarily think they're egging for a long civil war. Like, their ideal scenario probably is that, you know, Putin gives up tomorrow, right? My worry is more that the US and these outside forces, it's not their worst option for there to be a long and bloody civil war. Because just like in Afghanistan, what happened in Afghanistan was it was horrific. That, that 10-year war between the Soviet Union and the, the Afghan resistance was horrific for everyone living there. I mean, it was unspeakably brutal. The Soviets in particular, I mean, they just bombed towns. You know, they didn't really have very good targeted weapons, right? So they're just bombing all over the place because they didn't want it. They were losing too many Soviet citizens. It was, it was losing them legitimacy at home. So they just went for a real brutal air war. It was a terrible 10 years for, for everyone living there. And there was not much to show for it at the end because you know what happens in long civil wars, they kind of wreck any kind of political institution which could bring about any sort of competent, moderate rule and power extremists. So it's awful for anyone living there. But what it did do was drain the Soviet Union of resources and it helped America win the Cold War, right? So it's still seen the funding of, of the Mujahideen, despite 9-11, despite the failed NATO 20-year occupation of Afghanistan, is still seen as a success in many circles in, in US foreign policy. And Hillary Clinton there was talking about it as if it was a success, because what it did was drain the Soviet Union's resources and help the United States win a Cold War. And the millions of people left dead through this strategy from the United States are, are mere pawns in that. They're collateral damage. And that's what we need to be careful of in this situation, because I absolutely, I'm not even here saying don't arm the the Ukrainian rebels. I, I genuinely don't know. I think the Ukrainians have an absolute right to resist. This is an aggressive war from Russia. All I'm saying is we need to be very, very careful here and we need to not be gung-ho and we need to think seriously about what the impacts of pushing more arms into a war zone are. Obviously, we need to consider the, the consequences of inaction as well, but we need to consider seriously the consequences of, of action in this situation. And we also need to recognise that the Boris Johnsons, the Joe Bidens, the Murdoch and press... These aren't necessarily putting forward the pros and cons, the balance of risks in an objective way, because their worst option is that Ukraine falls into the sphere of influence of, of the Russians, whereas the worst option should be endless civil war, to my mind. We should be thinking about harm reduction, not about which side is Ukraine going to end up falling in, in a new Cold War. I just think that's really, really important for us to keep in mind, even though and I'm going to keep returning to this today, even though I don't actually know what is the right thing to do. I just think we need to be really, really careful of the narratives we're being given and how there are vested interests at play here as well. 
plan B with a fiver. Solidarity to the people facing racist attacks when fleeing this horrendous situation. Thank you, Navarra Media, for your excellence. So referring there to the many people, many African students in, in Ukraine and Kyiv who really struggled to leave the country because of racism by border guards and sometimes people who were guarding trains. It just sounds horrific. Um, I've seen lots of people have now got, got through, but it just sounded like an absolutely horrific and appalling situation. And yeah, racist. Even if we're even if we're backing the Ukrainians in this battle against the Russians, it doesn't mean that it's not like ours a deeply racist society in many ways. Laura Queen F again a similar message: solidarity to Africans and other Black and Brown people facing racism in Ukraine. Let's go on to our next story. Watching and waiting as a forty-mile convoy of Russian tanks and artillery heads towards Kiev is horrible. It's horrible to watch from the UK. It's a million times worse to watch from Kyiv or, or anywhere else in the country. And it's a context in which Ukrainians are increasingly calling on the West to intervene in a more proactive way. Daria Kalinuk is a Ukrainian journalist. She made this emotional plea to Boris Johnson. Ukrainian women and Ukrainian children are in deep fear because of bombs and missiles which are going from the sky. And Ukrainian people are desperately asking for the West to protect our sky. We are asking for the no-fly zone. We are saying response that it will trigger World War III. But what is the alternative, Mr. Prime Minister? To observe how our children are, instead of, mis instead of uh, planes, are protecting NATO from the missiles and bombs? What's the alternative for the no-fly zone? We have planes here, we have air defense system in Poland, in Romania. NATO has this air defense. At least this air defense could shield the Western Ukraine so that these children with women could come to the border. It's impossible now to cross the border. There are 30 kilometers of lines. Imagine crossing the border with a baby. Now, I have every sympathy for any Ukrainian asking the West to do whatever they possibly can to stop Russian troops bombing their, their cities. And I have every sympathy for the Ukrainian journalists asking that question. Ukrainians right now are faced with a hideous, hideous set of scenarios. But it remains the case that a no-fly zone would be a terrible idea. No-fly zones don't happen by magic or by agreement. They are enforced by shooting planes out of the sky. And if the West were to shoot Russian planes out of the sky, we'd be risking nuclear war. As I say, even though it's a terrible idea, I have every sympathy for Ukrainians asking for it. I have less sympathy, though, for the liberal pundits in the West echoing that call. Anti-Brexit campaigner Femi Oluwoli shared Kalinuk's question with this caption. It's insane that I'm starting a tweet with, I don't want World War Free, but... Then he goes on. The idea that we would shoot down Russian planes that were bombing NATO civilians, but not Ukrainian ones, as if treaties make Ukrainians' lives less worthy of protecting. He's saying, and then there's a sort of sad face, this, this is a bad idea, he's suggesting. If you start a tweet with, it's insane that I'm starting a tweet with, I don't want to start World War Three, then probably you're off on the wrong track. We really should be trying to avoid World War Three and any kind of moralistic argument. We say Ukrainian lies matter as much as Latvian lies because they're already in NATO. Obviously, all of these lies matter the same. But protecting Latvia, which is in NATO, is a very different situation to protecting people in Ukraine, if that means shooting down Russian troops. However bad it gets in Ukraine, nuclear war is worse. You have to live in the real world. We can go to some more of, of comments like this. Mail on Sunday columnist Dan Hodges posted this. If people want to oppose a no-fly zone, fine, but understand that is an act of appeasement, no different to our appeasement of Hitler 
1938, we are refusing to do what we know is morally right out of fear, and we are prepared to let a free nation die to safeguard ourselves. Now, he's making this sound so selfish, right? Opposing nuclear war isn't just to safeguard ourselves. We are talking about a war which could kill millions and millions and millions and millions of people. It is not selfish to want to avoid a nuclear catastrophe. And it's it's not shameful to act out of fear when the fear you are acting out of is, is a fear that a nuclear apocalypse could happen. You might say, look, neither of these people I've shown you are foreign policy experts. NBC's chief foreign policy correspondent had a similar idea, though. On Monday, he said, perhaps the biggest risk calculation moral dilemma of the war so far. A massive Russian convoy is about 30 miles from Kiev. The US NATO could likely destroy it, but that would be direct involvement against Russia and risk everything. Does the West watch in silence as it rolls? Now, as I say, I've shown you some people who weren't foreign policy experts, Femi and Dan Hodges. This guy is the chief foreign correspondent for NBC, one of America's biggest networks. And he seems to be openly advocating a course of action that would risk nuclear war. Luckily, most people in and around government aren't being quite as gung-ho. Tommy Vita is a former spokesperson for the U.S. National Security Council. He replied to Richard Engel saying, the way you tweet about whether the U.S. and NATO should engage in a full-on war against a nuclear-armed superpower is shockingly glib. It's not as simple as watching silence as it rolls or not. The stakes are risking nuclear annihilation. So a, a word of sanity there. Also to his credit, Boris Johnson has ruled out a no-fly zone. We can go back to part of that question from the Ukrainian journalist, now with Boris Johnson's answer. NATO is not willing to defend because NATO is afraid of the World War III, but it is already started. And these are Ukrainian children who are there taking the hit. Unfortunately, the implication of, of that is that the, uh, the UK and, uh, will be engaged in, in shooting down uh, Russian planes, uh, will be engaged in direct combat. Uh, with Russia. That's not something uh, that uh, we can do. It's a strange state of affairs, isn't it? Where there's an issue where I feel almost relieved that Boris Johnson is in charge. I mean, it's been just so painful to watch the UK's commentariat turned sort of armchair generals speaking so glibly about this when we, as you've outlined, the stakes are so high. It is, of course, absolutely true that Ukraine now faces an abominable situation where it feels inconceivable that there are any pathways out of this that aren't going to cost an immense number of lives. But these same journalists that are now banging the war drum have not actually paused to reflect on, you know, why did we get here? How did we get here? And that is actually where the answer of what should be done lies. Because as it stands now, as you were right, as, as you've outlined, it's really difficult to imagine what a peaceful way out of this situation could look like. Because the choice to, to not get into this situation needed to have been made much earlier in the process. And so the answer is found in that long view historical uh, way of looking at things, rather than this kind of clash of civilizations narrative that a lot of these journalists are engaging in, which is, you know, West is good, East is bad. But actually, as I've sort of outlined before, that dividing of the world into imperialist blocks, that competing for economic hegemony, that flooding the world with weapons, that arming the world with nuclear weapons, you 
end up having those countries that fall at particular strategic nodes becoming disposable and being put in these impossible situations. That context creates a a ticking time bomb. And it's incredibly convenient as kind of one of these mainstream media journalists, if you have essentially co-signed the creation of that world, the creation of that context, because let's not forget, many of the commentators that are now banging the war drum are the same ones that have actively chased anyone out of public life who has suggested that we should work towards a disarmed world or one that suggests that we shouldn't interfere in the democratic processes of other nations, that we shouldn't wantonly flout uh, international law, that we shouldn't go above the multilateral diplomatic institutions, which for all of their limitations, and there are many, it's better than having a world that is organized by authoritarian strongmen, essentially, who are armed with a bunch of nukes. And also, you know, who have chased out anyone from public life who have taken a solid stance against the global arms industry, which is pretty values neutral in who it's willing to to arm. And yet those same figures that have been complicit in the creation of that world are now very ready to strip the current catastrophe in Ukraine completely out of that historical context and basically create this dynamic where you're either pro, you know, pro-Putin or you're pretty chill about the notion of World War Three, which is obviously an impossible and absurd situation. And I, and I worry that as people naturally respond with fear and uncertainty at this, you know, unacceptable act of aggression from Putin against Ukraine, that the, that logical response is being used as a way to condone or legitimize that kind of world setup, to act like, oh, you know, it was inevitable that we need to have the only way to, to fight one imperialist bloc is to arm up and, and strengthen our imperialist bloc. And that has allowed for authoritarian strongmen like Putin to rise to the top, that the consequences of that are not being felt by armchair generals, you know, writing from the column of the columns of the Times. They're being felt by the Ukrainian people. And so I sort of what the only way that you undermine imperialism of one form is by undermining all imperialisms. And so I think that this kind of banging of the war drum in this way. I worry that it is going to give credence to the idea that the way we have established the world, which is that we need to have more arms, more nukes, more strongmen, more authoritarians than the other side, that that is somehow going to be legitimized as inevitable, when in fact it is entirely constructed and is what has led us into this mess in the first place. Well, we've already seen many countries say they're going to up their payments for arms, many European countries. I want to stick on this this theme of no-fly zones because, as I say, I, I don't think the West is going to implement a no-fly zone. I think this is probably because while they're willing to escalate conflicts, if that means risking Ukrainian lives or risking Afghan lives or risking Libyan lives, they're less willing to do it in a way that they think could risk their own life, which if we launched a nuclear war, it would kill the political leaders as well as us. I think So, so I think they are going to be a little bit careful here. But we should, I think, dwell on this a little bit because I think it is interesting that this is being put forward now and why it's being put forward and what it tells us about how people are seeing 
this conflict that they are suggesting something which on the face of it is so wild and there was a good article about this that Beecham um, had a piece in Vox he wrote no fly zones as a military concept distinct from traditional intervention only makes sense as a kind of police action designed to stop the use of air power especially against civilians rather than decide the conflict in favor of one side this makes sense when you think of the American military as a kind of global peacekeeping force used for preventing atrocities and toppling rogue autocrats like Saddam Hussein and Muammar Gaddafi. But today's aggression is not being launched by an isolated tin pot dictator. Its author is Vladimir Putin, leader of Russia and possessor of 6,000 nuclear warheads. To even speak of a no-fly zone in Ukraine is to wrongly import categories from a more recently familiar kind of conflict. So, in essence, what he's saying there, people are seeing this war within the frame of, of a unipolar world where America can essentially do what it wants, when actually we are now in a multipolar world, right? America can't just say, Russia, stop this or we'll bomb you because no, Russia is, is in many ways a peer of America. It is another superpower. Of course, you, you might have seen those quotes and thinks, well, you know, this is an incredibly idealistic way of looking at those previous interventions during that unipolar moment. I should say the article was a bit more subtle than those quotes I read. He did recognize that while that was the ideal of no-fly zones, for example, in Libya, what often happened is you got mission creep and then no-fly zone would lead to regime change and then you'd end up having a long civil war. What you wouldn't get, though, is defeat of the American military. That was always never, never in question, at least not on the field. Sometimes you would, you know, they would withdraw and it would be a failure, such as in Iraq and Afghanistan, because you'd have guerrilla warfare or whatever. But this is a completely different moment which our political class is really, really badly prepared to deal with. Finally, I want to end you this section by showing you one person who does. So a rare person who seems to recognize the risks of enforcing a no-fly zone against a country of nukes, but will entertain the idea anyway. The reason is fairly novel. This is Theo Washerwood, a political editor at LBC. He tweeted, get the arguments about whether or not to impose a no-fly zone over Ukraine. But can we just agree on one thing? If Russia uses a nuclear weapon or any weapon to inflict mass casualties under any circumstances, it won't be NATO that's responsible. It will be Vladimir Putin. To which I reply, if there is a nuclear war, there'll be no one left to blame anyone else. Like, I don't want to be pulverized righteously. When, when the nuclear war is, is landing, are we, the nuclear bomb, sorry, is coming towards London, are we all just going to be on Twitter saying, well, is this, did Putin act because of NATO or is this Putin's moral wrong? We're not going to care because we're all about to die. So this idea that is tweeting geopolitics like it's a Twitter argument. Who's right? Who's wrong? Who's morally virtuous? Who isn't morally virtuous? And what we need to do is live in the real world where there are different powers. They have different interests. There are, frankly, no good options in this situation. So how do we reduce harm? And we definitely don't reduce harm by starting a nuclear war with Vladimir Putin. So, I mean, thank God these liberal tweeters are not in power. These are the kind of people who say, oh, these, we would be the sensible people in power. No, these would be the most likely to start a nuclear apocalypse. Shadow cabinet members have reportedly told Keir Starmer he should kick out of his party 11 Labour MPs who recently signed a Stop the War Coalition statement. This is despite the fact that they withdrew their signatures when the leadership threatened to remove the whip. One of those members told Sky News... At the next election, it won't be Ed Miliband in Alex Salmon's pocket. It'll be Keir in John McDonald's. There's no chance of even a minority government if the Tories make that argument. We know what the public thinks about the prospect of these people being in charge of our security because they told us in 2019. 
So the reference to Alex Salmond is a reference to this Tory ad from the 2015 election. It depicts Ed Miliband in the pocket of Alex Salmond and was intended to incite a fear that a Labour minority government in coalition with the SNP would actually be controlled by Edinburgh. We might all get social democracy like they, they seem to be aiming for up there. So in this scenario, in, in this new updated version of Salmond or Ed Miliband being in Salmond's pocket, how would John McDonnell and other members of the socialist campaign group exert a malicious influence on a Labour government? Well, given the present situation, the focus is on security, hence the demand that Labour MPs distance themselves from Stop the War or lose the whip. Today, for example, John McDonnell withdrew from a Stop the War meeting after threats were reported in the media that he would lose the whip if he, if he spoke. But we need to ask, what is so bad about Stop the War? Well, the statement signed by the 11 MPs actually didn't contain any extreme positions. It condemned any war with Ukraine and called for a diplomatic solution while also criticising NATO's eastern expansion. It's a position which a week ago would have been completely un remarkable, with a focus on NATO being widespread in academic circles and even former colonels in the U.S. military. Here is Colonel Doug McGregor, a former senior advisor to the Secretary of Defense. Thank you for joining us. Why do you think Putin is doing this? What is his end game? <clears throat> well, Vladimir Putin is carrying through on something that he's been warning us about, at least for the last 15 years which is that he will not tolerate U.S. forces or their missiles on his borders, much as we would not tolerate Russian troops and missiles in Cuba. And we ignored him, and he finally acted. He was not going to allow Ukraine under any circumstances to join NATO. That position held by the former U.S. colonel is not an outlier. It's, it's common, and it's only in our new McCarthyite climate that it's become unsayable. But sadly, Starmer is buying into this McCarthyism. He recently told Labour MPs there will be no place in this party for false equivalence between the actions of Russia and the actions of NATO. Again, it's a completely vague thing to say. I think probably intentionally vague. Obviously, anyone who says, oh, NATO's offer for Ukraine to join them is, is worse or as bad as Putin aggressively invading the whole country with imperialist ambitions, obviously that would be ridiculous. But if you say that one of the causes of this situations is NATO, then you'll get Keir Starmer's like, they're blaming NATO and they're absolving Putin. No, this is, this is a terrible hole for us to get into when it comes to discussing complex issues such as foreign policy. But being fairly blunt, being fairly cynical, fits a pattern. Keir Starmer's response to Europe's first war in two decades has been cynical from start to finish. Instead of dealing seriously with the complexities of war, Starmer has used it as an opportunity to bash the left and talk tough. A recent article in the FT gave an idea as to why. So they write, two things are driving Starmer. First, is a total focus on winning back so-called red wall seats in former English heartlands where defence issues are salient. The party's strategists have concluded they must revert to the stances adopted when Tony Blair led the party and, politically speaking, wrapped himself in the flag. They say Starmer's other motivation is simple, power. When he was elected leader, he privately told supporters he may be a figure akin to Lord Neil Kinnock, who fought the left in the 1980s but failed twice at the ballot box. Yet as Johnson's standing has waned due to the Partygate scandal, Starmer's ambitions have grown. Keir has had a sniff of power, one shadow minister explains. He privately thought the odds were too great. Now he can see a route to number 10. Why would you brief that someone's had a sniff of power? It doesn't make them sound like a particularly relatable person. It makes them sound like they're power crazy. But anyway, of course... All this means that none of these statements from Keir Starmer are about NATO, let alone about 
Ukrainians. This is about electoral positioning. And Kistamer hasn't just shown himself to be a cynic here. He's also shown himself to be a coward. The Independent reports a service at a Ukrainian Orthodox church in Acton. A member of the congregation asked Starmer to urge the government to support a no-fly zone. In response, Kistamer said, we'll talk to the government about that. The congregant was delighted, but unlike Johnson, who explained the impossibility of a no-fly zone to a Ukrainian face-to-face, Starmer left it to a spokesman to tidy up after him. Keir Starmer did make clear that he would pass on the concerns about the tragedy that is happening in Ukraine to the UK government, and we know that one of the concerns is that of Russian air power. Labour fully agrees with NATO that a no-fly zone is not an option, as it would bring NATO and Russia into a direct conflict. So when he's faced with a Ukrainian who very understandably is asking, can I have a no-fly zone? Keir Starmer says, oh, I'll put that to the government. Really? He knows that would be a disaster. He knows that could lead to nuclear war. So he leaves it to the spokesman afterwards to give a statement to the newspaper. Oh, of course we don't support NATO expansion. But Keir Starmer's going to bring it up with Boris Johnson anyway. Why? Was it because he wasn't brave enough to speak the truth when he was at that visit? Is it because he's a coward? We've spoken actually throughout this show about essentially what happens when you have imperial hegemons fighting one another for cultural, political, and ultimately economic hegemony. And what we're seeing right now um, is that kind of on a on a very small scale, which is Keir Starmer and essentially and the more kind of general uh commentariat using the very real stakes and lives in Ukraine to basically continue and bolster their own internal um, political project. For Keir Starmer, it's his internal political project uh, within the Labour Party of, you know, stoking up a red scare and and purging anti-imperialist factions from within the party. And so in order to do that, we see this absurd simplification, not only of the situation that we are seeing in Ukraine right now, but of the anti-imperialist position. You know, they are trying to portray the anti-imperialist position as naive or as coming from the position that the US and the UK are the only imperial powers. Of course, uh, that is absolutely not reflective of the broader anti-imperialist position in the Labour Party or otherwise. And if that position is represented, it is very, very marginal and it is not held by any of those MPs that signed that letter, we know that any anti-imperialism that is worth its salt is against all imperialism and also understands that imperialists of different stripes actually are not really positioned as much ideologically in opposition with one another, but actually rely on each other uh, in many ways to bolster their own legitimacy um, and power. And it's actually an anti-imperialist analysis that can give us insight into how how you can actually create a world where we don't end up in this state of perpetual war uh, and perpetual violence. And yet Starmer is using that very crude simplification and flattening in order to continue an internal political project that is, frankly, it's irrelevant on the world stage right now, given what we are, what we are going through. And it's leading him to hold, frankly, dangerous positions, dangerous in a kind of minor way in terms of, I mean, you can argue whether or not this is minor, but, you know, dangerous to democracy in the Labour Party, but also just dangerous, full stop. For the reasons that you just outlined, we know pushing for a no-fly zone, which 
I don't think Starmer would actually do, but trying to to put that on the table as as a possible thing that that, that might happen um, is incredibly dangerous, could have incredibly dangerous consequences. And so the idea that you would uh, sort of fling that into the public discourse in order to project a certain image of yourself and the post-Corbyn Labour Party as hawkish, as socially conservative, etc., and in order to provide cover for the removal of the last socialist MPs in the party, that's incredibly reckless. Um, especially as we know the potential, as we know that he knows the potential impacts of this, and that he doesn't actually mean it in any kind of serious way. And that is an absolute, absolutely reckless use of his power as the head of one of the two main parties of the British state. And it's also a disrespect to the Ukrainian people in many ways to weaponize their struggle and to weaponize the conditions that they are living under in order to play party politics within the Labour Party. Dahlia, thank you for joining me this evening. Thank you for having me, Michael. It's been a quiet few weeks since I last saw you. Not much, not much happening. <sighs> it's very, very difficult to keep up. Thank you so much for watching this evening. We'll be back on Friday at 7pm. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.